welcome to Dead Headspace, part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we are talking to the lovely Catherine McCarthy. Hello, Catherine. Hi, boss. Hi, everyone. How's it going? Uh, so let's just dive right into it. What got you into horror? Oh, my goodness me. Such a lot um, a lot of things, really. But I just think that basically, ever since I was a child, I've been a pretty dark person. Um, you know, just, just liked things that were dark, liked things that were quite spooky as a child. And, you know, early films such as The Birds and Hitchcock stuff and, you know, those type of things. I just think I've just always been in touch with my dark side. Oh man, the birds. That's my favorite Hitchcock film. Yeah. Um, for those that are interested for a little little take from Joe Lansdale episode one hundred, he actually we talked about the birds for a little bit and uh as always he's got a little interesting insight on on that. Um Brennan, I'm gonna pass it to you, buddy, before I uh yammer away. Sure. So, you know, Catherine, you mentioned um, that you've always been kind of drawn to the dark side of storytelling. Uh, I think I read somewhere that you grew up on oral storytelling. Was it from your mother? Am I yeah, mis- am I remembering right. that correctly? Yeah. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that. I'm very interested in that because that's an art form that I feel like is really starting to die away. Right. Well, my mother just had the knack of being a really good storyteller and um, she had a tough upbringing my mother she she had a lot of love in the family but she was one of 11 children so as you can imagine there were lots of you know stories always being told in the house they they didn't have a lot but she would tell me sort of anecdotes from her own childhood and um, they often had a dark edge really there was always a bit of a bittersweet you know edge to them also you know with things like fairy tales I can remember that she always told me her own version so you know and and her version always seemed to be that little bit scarier than the actual tale so her version of the wolf and the seven kids for example was quite scary and even now after all these years I can still see her expression as she told it you know so I think she passed that on to me really and she had a love even though she was from a poor background disadvantaged background a lot of people were in those days you know um and she really, really loved reading and writing. And she taught me to read before I started school. So I was about four years old when I was able to basically read. And I remember the teacher having quite a surprise the first day I started school. You know, so I think it just stemmed from there. And she was just a very good teller of anecdotes, basically. I love the idea of uh, telling stories in that manner and always adding your own spin to them, folk tales and yeah. to a lesser degree, even folk songs where the melody evolves over time and the words change depending on the personality of, uh, you know, the person behind it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it's just it's the precursor to, you know, translating books to movies and things like that and having different elements uh, take center stage in different versions um, and yeah. I think it's so sad that it's almost kind of becoming a lost art. Now, did that yeah. is that something you picked up right away? You know, you 
yeah, I enjoyed think so. hearing hearing yeah. those stories and then you took it over? <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, and from a very young age myself, I wanted to be a primary school teacher. I think because of the way my mother was, you know, she was just a natural teacher, even though she didn't have the qualifications. And so my interest was there from a young, you know, a young age. And I actually ended up teaching primary for 28 years. And a big part of teaching for me was the oral storytelling. And like you say, nursery rhymes. I've got an absolutely awful singing voice, but it doesn't really matter when you're with young kids. And, you know, I that was my favourite part of teaching, really. And in the latter, I, I would say, 10 years, I taught English all morning to different classes, even though they were primary kids. So, you know, I did an awful lot of storytelling and, yeah, it just evolved from there, really. It was the biggest part of the job that I enjoyed the most then. Did you see a lot of uh, reactions in the kids' expressions when you oh, told definitely. those stories? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the kids, unfortunately, like over 28 years, I saw a big difference. You know, it, it became that most children started school without any sort of bank of nursery rhymes. Most of them, you you know this, Bren, and probably yourself as well, you know, like we, I think, even though I've talked about my mother sort of being poor materialistically, she was rich in a lot of ways because she had that bank of storytelling from her own family. And unfortunately, children these days might have the best clothes and the best mobile phones, but they don't have any wealth of language. And you'd be surprised. I mean, I don't know what it's like out there, but over here, particularly the area I taught in, which was in the Welsh um, South Wales Valleys, which is a very deprived area area of Britain, one of the most deprived areas of Britain, you know, completely actually, um, they come to school and most of them these days, well, I would say probably 50% of them are practically guttural. They can't speak, you know, and they, they certainly don't have any sort of um, oral, oral storytelling skills and any wealth of nursery rhymes or anything. So it's very important, you know, with the younger ones, particularly that you start that off really early on. I can't speak to that exactly, but I do believe that to a degree it's it is a universal experience. And yeah. this could be a two hour conversation in and of itself. Just, but yeah. it, it even in just twelve years of teaching, I'm noticing a big difference in students that come in, they start kindergarten and they are more prepared than I would have been, you know, uh thirty odd years ago. Uh, they can read, they know their letters better than children used to going into kindergarten. But it's almost just like a set of facts and they don't know what to do yeah. with it. The yeah. the creativity um, that and I'm sounding like just an absolute old codger here, but oh, the creativity that, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, any one of the three of us would have made complete and utter use of in our childhood. It's I don't want to say it's gone, but it's certainly not the same. Yeah, um, definitely. I'll come in in the morning and uh, there's kind of a before school um, I guess, care program. And all the students are, you know, separated uh, on devices. Uh, some are like watching a movie, but they're not, you know, playing together, they're not engaging in creative activities. Uh, it, yeah. it makes me wonder if you if you gave these kids a box and a, and a you know, a, a tin of markers, yeah. what would they do? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think it's a great disadvantage, you know, but like you say, you know, it does make me sound really old, which I am. 
but I could moan about it forever. But, you know, a lot of them back where I came from, then they will come in now and they're not even toilet trained. You know, so those basic skills have, have gone to a great degree. Not all of them, obviously, you know, you get some really the opposite end as well. But it tends to be two ends of the spectrum then, you know. But as you say, the social skills play in together and just being sociable, you know, pretty poor. Yeah, that's that, that's a whole different breed of horror than the one we we brought you on to talk about. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I'm curious, since we're on the subject of teaching anyway, you taught for 28 years, you said, and yeah. now you write full time, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, my when my mother died from a brain tumour at 70, age of 71, it sort of really gave me a rethink. And I thought, you know, life's so short, you just want to make the most of it. So my husband and I then told me we put together a, a financial plan and really sort of went for it so that we could both finish work early. So we finished work when we were 52, both of us, and we were pretty, you know, stable. I'm not not wealthy, obviously, because we both had, you know, that type of job. Tony worked in university and I taught all my life, but um, we both finished and now we're able to do comfortably what we want to do all day, every day, you know. So I would advise that for anybody. <laughs> that's, that's the dream. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. So in your 28 years of teaching, what are what are some things that you learned that you feel like make you a stronger writer now? Well, definitely teaching English helps you as a writer, I would say. Definitely just, you know, all, all the basic, you know, grammar and so on and, and just all, everything that goes with it, really, you know. But I mean, over 28 years, I saw an awful lot of change in ethos about, you know, it, it went everything from you know just let children express themselves and just see what comes from nothing basically to a far more stricter way of teaching literacy and you know the grammar was coming back and formal grammar and so on you know and spelling became much more important than it was years ago because you know what it is with government you know they go through phases where things are fashionable and then they're out of fashion and you know another government comes in and says they need to be taught formally and then that goes out the window so I saw a lot of changes but definitely I would say you know teaching English certainly helps your own writing. I'm curious about over there because over here when I was growing up up until probably high school Cursive was a big deal. It was fundamental yeah. thing to learn, and uh, it isn't anymore. Um, yeah. Over here, I'm wondering if it's the same in, in your part of the world. Yeah, that came and went because we found that, you know, because children tend to be on iPads and computers and things most of the time, their fine motor skills would become in really, really poor. So they, they didn't have any pen control, pencil control, you know, whereas when we were kids, we always had colouring books and pens and pencils. And it was just part of, you know, everyday routine. But children don't have those basics. They literally come, they haven't got a pencil case, you know, they don't own pens and pencils. So as you can imagine, then their, their handwriting skills were shocking, really bad, you know. So you, we start off like at the age of three it's for some of them, it's the first time they've ever held a pencil and handwriting definitely presentation wise deteriorated over the years. But again, as with other things, it, it cursive came in and out of fashion. 
you know, and as I was leaving, it was sort of becoming more fashionable again, but it, it came and went, you know? Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I just want to touch on one more thing on this subject as far as uh, storytelling goes. Now, for the two of you, because you're both teachers, do you guys think that the accessibility to really discover fairy tales, for example, just type in fairy tale, you get anything. Could be from Asia or whatever. Do you guys think that that's? Have you noticed it being beneficial with the with kids in your age group, such a teacher, or or are they really not paying attention to things of that nature? Well, I, I personally think they they absolutely love fairy tales when you know when they're offered them, you know. And I always made a point of teaching multicultural fairy tales as well. So, yeah, huge advantage, I would say. And even things like nursery rhymes, it develops rhyme patterns and it helps with their speech. There's so much involved. But I think children love dark stories. I think we underestimate what they're capable of, um, not being afraid of, basically. They love a bit of horror, in my experience. What do you think, Brennan? I, I think you're dead on where you said that they love fairy tales when they have the exposure. Uh, to to Pat's specific question, uh, how how I I forget exactly what it was, but you know, with with them being able to kind of find them at their fingertips, you know, it's just a Google away. I I, I don't think they'll go in that direction on their own, uh, or at least not the levels that I I teach. Um, but as as far as yes, they love fairy tales. I mean, I will gravitate a lot towards uh, choosing songs that kind of have a f almost fairy tale um, ballad style and tell a story throughout. Even though they're a little more difficult to learn because they include more lyrics, kids tend to en enjoy them. There's one, I don't know if either one of you are familiar with it, we did at the end of the school year and the kids loved it, uh, called The Ballad of Senor Don Gato. It is a Mexican folk song uh, that has a cat who receives a love letter that uh, his lady cat has agreed to marry him. He gets so excited that he falls off the roof um, and <laughs> dies and then uh, comes back to life reanimated in order to marry this girl cat. And the kids love it. And how dark is that? It's got zombies. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, they do. They definitely love a bit of dark. Yep. Catherine, what's your what's that story that you said the wolf and seven children? The Wolf and the Seven Little Kids. Oh yeah, I haven't heard of that one. What, what's that about? Oh, it's it's a real it's a traditional um fairy tale. It's sort of another version of you know there's big bad wolves in so many fairy tales, aren't they? It's just basically about um, a mother wolf who has seven kids and she goes um shop she goes out you know into the woods to get food and so on and there's a bad wolf as well prowling the, the woods and um she always tells her kids that when she comes home she locks the door and she says T tell you know if if you want to find out if it's me or, or the bad wolf you've got tell them to put their paws up at the window and she says you know when i think of it now right as a kid i didn't see this at all but now as an adult, I can see there's a possible racial connotation there because she says 
because she's a white wolf, right? And she says, your mummy has got white paws, but the big bad wolf has got brown paws. Uh. So him to put, you know, his paws up at the window. Now, like I say, as a kid, that totally went over my head. And the story is then that the wolf dips his hands in flour to turn his paws white and the kid, you know, the kids let him in, basically. So, um, he, you know, he tricks them. But I mean, I, I don't know whether I'm just reading too much into that, but it is possibly, you know what I mean? I think sometimes things like that years ago had an underlying element that we see now that nobody ever saw back then. And perhaps it wasn't intentional. But I think you need to be more careful these days. Yeah, uh, you know, it could be a million things. Um, it could just be that. That was the color that popped in yeah. their head. Yeah. It could be that they were racially targeting yeah. targeting a race. <laughs> it's hard to tell, especially because they have a different a lot of people. Because we, on our other show, on Burying the Dead, we're trying to focus on classic paperbacks and um, in the horror genre. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just say we're talking about Rosemary's Baby. And in one of the f- first pages, Ira Levin describes the... Uh, elevator attendant as a negro like you can't say that shit nowadays yeah, yeah so yeah. I, and i don't I, I i gotta go on a limb and say he wasn't being offensive yeah. um he, that's just how they talked back then and yeah. i know that's gonna piss some people off but it's so many variables but i totally see what you're saying and that makes me think of looney tunes like there's definitely yeah, yeah. the way that's that right. they draw black people especially uh yeah super racist and asians actually so yeah it's so many things you see as a kid and then you see as an adult you're like wait a minute yeah that's true i I mean personally i don't think we can change history the important thing is that we learn from it isn't it that's a great point yeah absolutely um and you know i'm gonna go on a super short tangent but i just saw yesterday that for um god i forget what state it was but they are taking somewhere in the south in America. They're uh, taking a, or they took the Andrew Jackson statue, uh, removed it, and and I, I'm all for that. Like, it doesn't make sense to hoist them. But I'm person. My personal opinion is that they should be museums because you don't want to forget the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because how are you gonna know to look out for the next bad guy in the future if you yeah. don't know what the past presented? Yeah. That's a great point. And I find myself asking more and more these days, you know, has has our world changed for the better? And unfortunately, I can't see much of that happening. You know, it's, I don't know. I think we're in a bit of a dire dire straits at the moment everywhere. I think COVID hasn't helped and, you know, various things. I mean, for Britain as well, Brexit, to me, coming out of a union is not the best thing. I think we need to work together, but you know that's a whole another another subject that we could spend a day on as well. But you know, to me, things are not better. Yeah, it. You know, I think people are always going to be people, no matter yeah. what kind of shiny toys or technological advances you got. People are people. Yeah. Um, Brennan, you want to steer us into? Uh, I might butcher the title. Immortal. Did I say that right? Yeah, immortal. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Yeah, I'd love to. So, I mean, this is we're we're, we're skipping some steps to talk about your uh, newest release, uh, but I believe, please correct me if I'm wrong, is is this the uh, first non self published um, book that you have put out? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. So, 
what what made you decide you know i'd like to see this work published through uh more traditionally if if independent yeah well when i first started it never entered my head when i first started writing it didn't enter my head about sort of subbing or anything i i had no idea how the world of writing worked at all i just thought you know created this book and because my husband's an artist as you probably know that from things i put on twitter and so on we just created this package together it was a middle grade novel my first book and oh we can put this on amazon and, and it'll sell and i just was so naive and i mean that was only a few years ago and it's only in the last sort of 18 months that I started to realise, you know, it isn't as simple as that. And um, I started having a few short stories accepted then with, uh, into anthologies. And again, that was a complete learning curve because I had no idea that those things even existed. If you spoke to me 18 months ago, I had literally no idea about anthologies and indie publishers, nothing at all. So, you know, through various connections on Twitter mainly and a few other places, people started saying to me, you know, why don't you sub a story for this and so on. So it, it basically came out of appearing in anthologies, really. And then I saw Samantha was putting out a call and I happened to have written Immortel, you know, at the time. And um, basically, I just thought, oh, I'll give this a go because you get more exposure, obviously, with a publisher. You know, people have more faith in you, I find. You know, I mean, there are some wonderful self-published works out there and I, I am still an advocate of self-published works, but it is so wonderful to have an opportunity to have a bit of exposure through a publisher as well. So, you know, it's just sort of stemmed from there, really. So and that, it's and literally a learning curve in 18 months. <laughs> that That's a beautiful one for that exposure because, you know, they, they got attention right off the gate because Samantha was coming off of True Crime, which everybody loved. Oh, fantastic. Um, oh, Yeah. And and then right right you know the first two releases they put out Crossroads by Laurel Hightower and The Worm and His Kings by Haley Piper, um, two of the strongest books that came out last year. Yeah. So I mean, what a wonderful home for Immortal to find. Yeah. Now, one thing I really liked is that you gave us a page right at the beginning, and I would I would almost call this book unapologetically Welsh. Uh, or at least unapologetically, you know, UK. Uh, it's there. There's not a an attempt to Americanize it, despite the fact that uh, a lot of the people who pick up this book are going to be on this side yeah. of the Atlantic. Yeah. Instead, you you know, I'm going to use these words. Here's yeah. what they mean. Uh, you may be unfamiliar with the concept of an immortel. Here's what that is. You know, just yeah. one page of everything you need to know to appreciate the story and you know damned if you didn't set it up you know perfectly in one page give give me everything i needed to know uh so i, I i'm kind of jumping around here now but i wonder could you give us a uh kind of an almost back cover synopsis for potential readers okay well i i would say basically it's a ghost story it's fundamentally a ghost story um there's quite a lot of magical realism in the story I would say if you're looking for out and out explicit gore, it's not for you because my writing tends to be more subtle. I would say it's in the quiet horror genre for sure. And it's basically about um, the protagonist is a, a woman who has a young daughter and she's also 
Um, the woman is also a ceramicist and she creates personalised immortelles, which are, you know, um, memento mori, basically for the gravestones after a personal tragedy. Um, so, and she, she starts being able to communicate with the spirit world and that has a big emphasis on the, the the story and the way it pans out. So without giving too many spoilers, I think it's just basically a, a quiet horror ghost story, I would say, with a lot of magical realism elements. Yeah, and it it, it certainly, you know, it, it's quiet horror. And I, all right, if you consider this a spoiler, I'm pulling from the back cover, but uh, yeah. if you can, we can always cut it if it's too spoilery. It, definitely fits nicely into the term of grief horror. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder if that was something, so uh, if that's a subgenre that you intentionally write in or something you find yourself gravitating towards and say, oh no, here I am again. Yes, the latter. I <laughs> An awful lot of my stories are, um, involve grief horror and it isn't something that I intentionally set out to do for me. Um, I do gravitate towards grief horror. You know, people say that horror is upsetting and so on. For me, it has the opposite effect. So I use grief horror as a tool for coming to terms with life's difficulties, basically. And one of which is grief, you know, is the one thing we all dread, basically, isn't it? You know, and all of us have to experience. So, yes, I do naturally gravitate that way. Sometimes I, I intend to write a light story, and but there'll always be an element of grief. It sort of works its way in without me even realising it. And, and I mean, that's what horror is, whether it's the most like in your face extreme stuff or whether it's the quietest things. It's yeah finding a way to a way to cope a way to try and understand how we would cope with the things that scare us most yeah. and if being alone in a deserted woods and being stumbled upon by a werewolf is your biggest fear more power to you write that book but yeah. i i think that a more realistic fear is is that loss you know yeah. what would i do without this if something happened uh, to to this person, and you know, as you just as a parent, that's you know, yeah. that's that's why this book struck me. That's why Crossroads struck me. Is if you are making a list of your top fears and the loss of a child is not on it, then yeah, it's, I, I that's 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 my list. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think as well, I tend to write. Um, lighter and darker shades depending on what's going on in my own life at the time like the first collection I put out was Door and Other Twisted Tales and that was a collection of portal horror and the title of story there Door was very dark you know um, but I and the, the main character in Door has just lost his mother with a brain tumour which is exactly the experience I had so for me it was the sort of mental anguish of coming to terms with that through a character and I often do that and if I'm going through a very light phase of life you know then my stories tend to be a bit lighter but it isn't a conscious thing it just sort of happens and sometimes something angsty will be in me for maybe 
20, 30 years and then it'll find its way onto the page. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, Catherine, I wanted to, in regards to this book, I wanted to read something that uh, Sadie Hartman put up in response to it uh, yesterday or the day before. Um, she compared your writing in this book to the scrummy, which is a combination of scrumptious and yummy, clicking yeah. of typewriter keys, the delicate crinkling sound of a glassine envelope, and sharp scissors gliding through parchment. That's that's how she views your storytelling voice. Now, I am I have my own interpretation of what that means, but I'm curious how you take that. Yeah, well, I read that this morning. That was the first thing I saw when I put the computer on this morning, and I was really, really thrilled. You know, um, I think she's right, actually, because I think my sort of horror, I I, I tend to I would say the, the first two bits you talked about, you know, the crinkling and the, the I can't remember the exact words, but um, those are the sort of, um, I think my writing has a poetic tone. And I think that's partly comes from being Welsh because we are known for sort of song lyrics and singing voices, not personally, and very poetic, people like Dylan Thomas and so on. Our prose tends to be poetic. Um, so there's a lot of that sort of flowery language in a way that just comes naturally into my storytelling. And then I sort of lull the reader into a false sense of security. And then the bit about the scissors, I'll go in for the juggler. And it, it, I, I hope I, you know, it's, it's unexpected, really. So there's a poisonous edge that will sort of trip you up. So that's how I sort of interpret it. Ooh, I like the I like the bit about the scissors. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you with kind of the um, the flowery poetic nature. I what one thing that struck me was the idea of the typewriter keys because it's yeah. I mean there's a difference in sound between clacking away on a typewriter and clacking away on a computer keyboard, yeah. and I interpreted that as kind of a, there's almost a classic feel to your prose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I hadn't thought about that. But, you know, like I say, I only saw it this morning. That is true. And a few people have said my writing reminds them of Shirley Jackson. So, you know, that there is an old fashioned element to my writing. And again, it's not a conscious thing. You know, it's just it just happens then, you know. So, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. That Shirley Jackson comparison's got to feel pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm reading her at the moment, actually, her short stories. Oh, is that the, you said the, the short stories, but is that the, that's not the letters, is it the newer one? I'm reading um, the lottery and other short stories. Oh, okay. Yeah. I got, I got you. Um, Brennan, anything else on this book, sir? Yeah, one, one more thing before we move away from it. Now, we described it as grief horror, uh, and it's... You know, certainly not a lighthearted, fun read, but no. it's also at, at you know at a hundred pages. Um, I I don't want you know anybody listening to this and considering it thinking that it's a depressing slog because that's not it either. So how would you you know to to somebody who maybe grief horror isn't typically their thing? Uh, what would you say? What's a good reason for them to check it out as well? Oh, good grief. I think I, I think it's the sort of story that that's a tricky one that sort of takes you away. I mean, yeah, grief is the underlying element and it's a story of revenge. 
but there's a lot of lightness there. It's not all dark. There's, I would say there's probably 70% of light as well. Like the way that I sort of use the chemicals in the pottery. And, you know, there's a lot of hope in the story as well. There's a lot of, um, you know, the influence of birds and and nature, an awful lot of, there's a bit, you know, quite a bit sort of of spirituality in there, not in the traditional religious sense, but um, through the power of nature and plants and so on. So I would say 70% lightness and then 30% dark. Yeah, you do describe uh, some pretty neat stuff, details of one of the vase, vases, I'm so vase, I don't know why I said that way. Um, <laughs> about, about, I just specifically remember of a bird and its eyes and how it glinted and stuff, and I, I just thought that's really neat because I can, I, I like the images in my head. So, um, yeah. yeah, it has some really neat things in it, and also of glossing. I've never even thought of that. Like, I've never thought of that process. And yeah. from me, obviously, I don't speak for all Americans, but for me, um, reading books outside of what had been no that's not true i was gonna say my comfort zone but i've always been drawn to like british authors too uh i guess reading outside of what i had normally read until i was introduced to the independent um side of horror dark fiction and so forth i think that you guys shouldn't you guys mean a non-american non um i know wales is under Britain, right? But it's, I mean, non-English, England, yeah. London. Um, you guys shouldn't change because how else are we going to learn about it? Yeah. So I think you did a great job. Uh, Alan Baxter did that too with his uh, little glossary for, um, was it Australian terminology? Like, it's yeah. great. It, I think that's fantastic. It reminds me of like, kind of, I guess, like foreign films. Yeah, like it, yeah. It, it is what it is, but here's how you can understand and follow along with some subtitles. Yeah. So I just some want to say bravo for that, seriously. Thank you. Some of the vocabulary, you know, to get to get the direct speech spot on, I would have had to use some Welsh, you know, just little terms that they always use, such as Bach, but everybody calls everybody in, in Wales, not just children, everyone's bark. Like the, the local councillor would knock our door and the first thing he says when I answer it is, Shamai Bach. You know, it's, ju it's just, they would not say hello, how are you? So I wanted it to feel authentic, you know. So certain terms I had to use in Welsh. And then there's some that are similar to the English word. For example, Daifol, D-I-A-F-O-L, is the Welsh spelling of devil. But I think if you say, you know, because the F sounds like a V in Welsh. So devil, Daifol, there isn't that much difference. So I think, you know, it's quite easy to pick up. For sure. And I just want to touch on something that you guys were talking about uh, a few minutes ago about horror. How, um, and we've talked about this with other people, but so it's it's I think it's important to reiterate every now and then, which is that, uh, for example, my father-in-law, um, he's not like he'll he'll ask me, we you know we have a good relationship, we talk about what we're doing, and uh, I know he knows I got a podcast. It ain't for him, but he um he kind of said that oh horror's not for me, I don't like that. I'm paraphrasing. Basically, said he didn't like that blood and guts, and I'm like, interestingly enough, and then I start talking about basically what we talked about because that's yeah. kind of what people think. And, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, he works in a shelter in a 
rough city. And I'm like, you live with horror every day, man. Yeah. And that is real horror, isn't it? Yeah, he deals with drug addictions, uh, mental health, um, just people that are broken in some cases, people that are desperate. So um, I'd like to move on to your photography. Just very first question is, what is it about photography that draws you to it? Um, well, my husband's really the photographer. I just dabble. Most of the things I put up are his. But I do use sense of place as a stimulus for writing very, very often. Um, so we're very lucky around here as well. There are a lot of um, historical places that we can visit. Um, churches, um, castles, you name it, standing stones like the story I wrote for Carrick Samson. And so I find those places very good for stimulating story ideas. And I would say probably 70 percent or, or, or even more of my stories are set in the past. So, um, for example, I've got a story coming out in the next um, British Fantasy Horizons journal that's due out now and any moment now that that one came that one's called Mosaic. And that stemmed from a photograph of a stained glass window that we took when we were out and about um sort of and then my husband actually created the front cover image for this particular edition of British Fantasy Journal as well so we both sort of featured in there um yeah and I've you've probably seen on Twitter I post lots of photos of standing stones and you know um cromlechs and graveyards and so on I, we just we'll just sit there and spend literally an afternoon in a graveyard <laughs> so I, I just find it you know is it, for me I'm, I'm not a visual person I'm definitely an auditory person and I pick up on words far more than visuals so to get the sort of visual imagery that I need to create stories I need to be given a picture and that's what photography does for me that's awesome and uh just for those that don't know standing stones what, what are those standing stones such as um stonehenge so, you know, they, um, they've got various names, Menirs and Cromlechs, they're known as in Wales. They are um, ancient historical stones that have been placed, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. And we've got quite a few of those around you. That's really neat. And that's awesome that you and your husband were in the same magazine. That's, that's really neat. Yeah. Uh, my wife's not into cemeteries, but... The one cemetery that she came uh, before we moved from New England to back to her home state in New Jersey was uh, where Lovecraft was buried in East Providence called Swan Cemetery. Right. And it's gorgeous. I I felt like I I come from a middle class family and I'm like, I don't think I could afford dying here. (laughs) (laughs) But uh it's really nice and for those that enjoy lovecraft there's just like all this merch uh not merchandise there's all these uh little things to say like i I appreciate you there so that's kind of cool um 
Brennan, why don't you take us away, sir? Sorry, go ahead, Catherine. No, I was just going to say my grandfather was the sexton of the local church. So he was the grave digger. So I spent a lot of my childhood in the graveyard. You know, we'd walk up and see my grandfather and then his son took the job over from him and then his son took the job over from him. So, you know, churchyards are ten a penny to me and they're all pretty ancient around here as well. Like I can just literally walk out my door and maybe three or four hundred yards down the road, there's a cemetery with immortelles, Victorian immortelles still in That's place. so cool. Yeah. How, um, how, do you know how old that cemetery is? Because here the oldest, you know, is the oldest like colonized. I don't even know if that's the right terminology. The, the oldest colonial or whatever cemeteries. Yeah. I could imagine they don't even come close to the ones that you oh, guys yeah. have. I mean, ours, the, the churches, my local church, Bidwelty Church, where I'm talking about with my grandfather, dates from the 13th century. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had uh, Lex H. Jones on for episode one, and we talked, of, I don't know how long, but it felt like it was pretty lengthy, about the difference between history of America and history of the UK, Europe in general. And how there's just a whole nother world of ancient, um, I don't even know what the right terminology is. It is just a whole branch of history to play with, with that, with uh, all the um, architecture from that period. And uh, it's really neat. I've never been to Europe, but I would love to just do that too, just walk around and not have my phone, just have a camera. Yeah. Sounds awesome. You guys Makes do that a lot, sense. don't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. All the time, like practically every week, especially through the summer. That's um, awesome. You know, like like Carrick Samson, I, I discovered yesterday, just by chance, that um, my story that was in Diabolica Britannica, Carrick Samson, I, I based it on a cromlech, so a standing stone that is on the coast not far from where I live, and told the story from the point of view of the standing stone. And uh, Ramsey Campbell gave me a, a fantastic sort of foreword on that as well. That's and great. I discovered yesterday that um, it's been nominated in the ladies' um, horror shortlist so that was lovely yeah so that that was a bit of a unique voice told from the point of view of the standing stone <laughs> thousands and thousands of years old an ancient monument i'm sure they got stories to tell brennan pick up sir yeah i was gonna say congratulations on that uh on that short listing that's that's pretty awesome yeah um, it was a total surprise <laughs> <laughs> hey it's a, it, that's the best kind of surprise to find right yeah um yeah. so Let's talk a little bit about your uh, beginning uh, of writing. Now, obviously, you started writing when you were still teaching, uh, just in your spare time. Um, what what kind of kicked that into gear? Well, I, I think I, I would consider myself always to have written, really. But, you know, I, I, it was something I loved doing from childhood. And I always seemed to excel at reading and writing in school. So the love has always been there. But, um, yeah, I self-published my first book, a middle grade novel, because that was the age of children I was teaching at the time in 2015. So that was really when I started taking it more seriously. Um, And then after that, um, when my mother died, I wrote 
Hope Cottage, which isn't horror at all, though it is a dark sort of family saga that explores grief and grief is definitely the sort of theme of that book. Um, I donated everything I made off that one to the Brain Tumor Society. Um, and then I started writing my short stories. So Dawn and Other Twisted Tales, the collection built up um, all portal stories, like I said, and they are set all over the world. A few of those have been published. Um, one of them that I set um, in Australia is published in 25 Gates of Hell. Um, yeah, and then from there, I started writing more and more shorts until I, you know, I, I mean, 50% of the stories that are published in Mists and Megaliths have been published in other anthologies or, an, or online, and then 50% of them are new. So because I thought like if people have bought those anthologies, it isn't fair for them just to have a complete lot of, you know, repeated material. So I did a 50-50 spread. Um, and then I have a novel that I've got out on the sub at the moment um, called The Wolf and the Favour. That's sort of, I would say it's more young adult, though I think a lot of adults would enjoy it. And the protagonist in that is a 10-year-old girl who has Down syndrome. So I know, like, for example, thinking about that one now, going back to you saying earlier about the teaching experience and how that affects my writing. You know, my main character in that story, Hannah, with Down syndrome, because I did teach some children with learning difficulties, including Downs as well. Um, so I'm still using those skills, you know, to get her voice right. So you just don't think about it, really. So that one's ready. I might end up self-publishing it because I'm not very good at the, the subbing game. I'm all right with, you know, anthologies, <laughs> but I sort of give up. I can't troll huge lists of agents and I just can't do it. I go, oh, I'll, I'll send a year and there and oh, never mind. I'll give up and self-publish it. I'm not very good at persisting with that because I think it's just because I don't know. I think I've reached a stage in my life where I'm not looking for fame and fortune and I think that's genuine. So, you know, I just think it's just nice to write the stories and let people read them, basically. So I'm not particularly it's not really a career for me. Does that make sense? Well, no, I mean, that, no that, that not only sense. that, but, you know, if you're self-publishing the right way, you know, the what you have to do is you have to shell out money for a cover. But you've got that set. Um, <laughs> you, yeah. You've got that aspect taken care of. Uh, you have to get it edited and, you know, you have to get it in front of eyes that you trust. And you've made so many good contacts uh, yeah. in such a short period of time that two out of those three check marks are, you know, pretty much our easy street for you. So, you know, why not? And, and as you know, Tony makes book trailers for me as well, which are pretty um you know, pretty hot because um, he's an animator. So I'm, I am really lucky. It just works as a package, really, you know. I mean, it would be quite nice, I suppose, one day to have a traditionally published book. But for me, it's not the be all and end all. I just what, what writing gives me mentally a mental focus is far, far outweighs any sort of fame or anything that comes from it, you know. And it's been really nice to meet people in the writing community, such as yourselves and so many other people, because my friends in real life are not interested in the least. <laughs> I think a lot of people can relate to that because yeah. we're spread out throughout literally the world. Um, I think that's really nice and important too. what you said, because uh, 
everyone's got different, just like anything in life, everyone's got different goals. Everyone has different lines where they're like, this is, this would make me happy if I accomplish this. And going back to something you talked about, because Brennan brought up or asked you about um, self-publishing your previous books, um, paraphrase, of course, but Catherine, you said something about how there's some really good self-published books. There are. And I think it's really important. I got I got <laughs> I got tracked through the coals for saying it, I guess, the wrong way years ago. But uh, it was because my stance and I, I think there's something else important to reiterate. It's not for everyone. I get it. But I feel like if you want a good story that you want people to read, it has to be edited. And that's one of the steps in in any type of publishing. Um, and also, for some readers, writers, it helps that beta, you know, readers. But also having a good cover and so forth. Yeah. I mean, you, Jenna, Je- Gemma, more, um, Alan Baxter, even, and there's a long list of people that do it right. So I think that's really good to just point out that that that's not a bad thing um yeah to do because when it, they first came out it was like don't self-publish it's yeah. it's you know yeah. go ahead i cut you off sorry i'm just gonna say you know the only sad thing is we have to be honest and we there's an awful lot of bad stuff out there as well and and unfortunately you know there is no sort of standardization with self-publishing that's the only shame of it really you know, because we, I'm sure I'm not on my own year now. We've all picked up books and we think, shit, what's that? You know, within a few <laughs> pages. I mean, come on, you've got to admit, right? Some of them are really, really bad. They are. <laughs> they are really, really bad. And it's, it's unfortunate because I've got total mixed feelings about this. And this, again, comes back to teaching. And Brennan, I'm sure you will feel the same. I, I hate knocking people. So like if a child brings you a piece of work, you, the first thing you'll do is look for the positive. And, and that child's handwriting might be atrocious. Their spelling might be so bad that you can hardly make out what they're trying to say. But that child might have fantastic ideas. So there's always something to praise. And I really, really hate knocking people when they're having a go and it's giving them some pleasure. But by the same token, people are spending money on this and it isn't fair to produce a very bad quality product. So I, I'm totally torn with that sort of thing. That's like the reviewing game, you know, it's just yeah. like, I don't know about you two, but for me, I won't, if I fail a book is a two or one star, I won't post it. And yeah, I just, I, I don't think that's helping anyone. First off, I don't hold my opinion as high as like God or whatever, where I'm like, oh, well, this will change your career. I'm not in that position. There are people in that position, yeah. like Brian Keene. I mean, he doesn't, he said publicly that he doesn't um, kind of post stuff anymore because of the controversy it brings. But yeah. I think that's right. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, you know, you got to think, like, is it really important that I put out my opinion about why this sucks? Because that could really, I don't know, uh, that could also kind of fuck someone up for a little yeah. bit. I mean, we've seen it, haven't we? We've seen it on Twitter. It can devastate people, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I, if, if I read, I think you can tell within the first few pages 
I tend to read the look inside on Amazon and that'll give you so much idea of what's going on, you know, so that's always a, a big thing. But if I end up with a book that's really bad or sometimes it's just not to my taste because like we're all different when it comes to preferences, then I'll just DNF it, you know, or if I've struggled through it and I think, Jesus, that was a one or a two, I don't review it. I'm not knocking people who do because everyone, you know, is entitled to do what they want to do. But for me, I don't post reviews that are one and two star. It's just my personal choice like you. I, I just can't. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, and no judgments from either way. Um, that's that's where I think it gets really cringy, where someone's like, this is how I'll do it. So, you know, yeah. I'm really going to get angry if you don't do it this way. That's Yeah, I we know. We see it all the time. It's crazy. I know. I was just telling Brennan the other day that there was something posted about People talking about some cat person or whatever. if you know about it, I, I don't want to hear about like the <laughs> details. But I just saw on Twitter like two days ago, some people talking about someone that wrote about some cat or something. I, I don't know what the hell it's about, but I'm like, I'm glad I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I often I, there's probably not a week goes by on Twitter unless you think, geez, I'm glad I'm not part of that. And I stay away from those, con you know, controversies. I've got my own opinions. We all have. But I, I'm not here to argue with people. I'm not here to upset people. You know, I'm not trying to paint a pretty picture of the world because, you know, it's a mess. But, you know, I just don't want to knock people. That's not why I'm here. Yeah. Uh, you know what? My, what I personally found the best way to, uh, to to not get roped into that usually is by not scrolling because uh, – yeah. I'll just like see a friend or whatever, something that I want to comment on. I do that and I'm trying yeah. my best now. I just like yeah. reply and go, yeah. all right, bye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know it is difficult if you see someone you know and you consider them a friend, even though you've never met them. I mean, yeah. some of my what people I genuinely consider good friends, I know on Twitter and Twitter alone. Right. You know, and if you see them get in a bit of a hard time, it is tempting to dive in and I think of it as a sort of like it's the grown-up world of the playground so you know not there is a lot of bullying that goes on though it does you know yeah. and then the significant sort of stand back as of which I am one because I choose not to jump in and give my two enough then they actually can make the situation worse sometimes because the natural instinct is to defend someone you see under attack particularly when you like that person you know but um so I suppose we are onlookers in a way and it is a shame but it often ends up as a as a playground for me and I just I think life's too short you know just don't do it I'm sure Brennan's gonna jump in so let me just make one more comment and then go for a man um you know I I umpired baseball when I was 12 and in my hometown and my dad said 50% of people will not agree with you every time 50 will and obviously that figure is just like a generalization but I was 12 and they were grown ass men getting pissed about minor league baseball, which I mean, unless there's money on the line, even if there is, that'd be weird. But <laughs> the whole point is, is just like if you don't take a stand, someone's going to get very angry if you do. So at the end of the day, take care of your own mental health. And yeah, yeah. if someone's not going to act like a friend, I guess they're not your friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Brian. I, I was going to say, I think we're all, you know, guilty of 
considering people that, you know, we've never met and live thousands of miles away from us friends just because we're uh, we've interacted on Twitter and, you know, read each other's books and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when the, when those pylons happen, as they frequently do, yeah. I, you know, I think the best thing to do is just send that person a message. Be like, hey, thinking about you, yeah. you know, support exactly you. Too. Yeah. And, and, you know, because even if you jump in there and, you know, you stand stalwart against that army of, you know, hate, uh, it's at that point, it probably doesn't matter because that person has muted the conversation anyway yeah, and doesn't yeah. want to hear another damn thing about it. So yeah. if you could do that in real life, just like you hear someone that's like, la, 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 and you're like, mute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they made a movie about that. It's called yeah, Click, and it didn't bad. go well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, actually, there's kind of uh that's funny as hell. Click, Click was funny. Not a great movie, in my opinion, but, like, it was funny. Um, They made a uh, one of my favorite shows, Black Mirror. I hope that comes back with season six, I think, five. But... There was an episode where um, it was in the testing stages where uh, parents could give their kid this filter in, basically a, a filter for life where you couldn't see violence, you could not hear curse words, and I'll spoil it if you guys want. Um, at the end, she go the girl I, uh, I think kills her own mother. It's been a while since I watched it, but you can't see the actual violence or hear the actual cries because it's all filtered out. Um, mm. That show's crazy. If you guys haven't watched it, I'd watch it. It is some so many crazy social commentary things in there that ring true. Yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it. There's also one about bees where they have um autumn uh they're like automatons, they're just they're not real, but you need like without bees this world won't work. Yeah, um, yeah. and someone if there's people there are that makes something good. There are people that gotta try to make it bad. So the some hacker makes it so the bees attack everyone. So if you have thousands of bees attacking people, you're screwed. <laughs> and on the note, while I'm on it, you know what? Screw it. Uh, I, I've looked up um, like future within our lifetime uh, medical advances, technological advances, and one of them was um, 3D printers making human organs. Right. And the downside to that is hackers could potentially put viruses in an organ that would be in your body. Yeah. It's yeah. just all this crazy stuff. Terrifying uh, thought. It is. Just imagine you get a heart. You're like, this is good. And, yeah. <laughs> and it explodes or something. Good story material, though. Uh, that's true. Brendan, help me. There's always going to be... There's always going to be bad people. And yeah, yeah. as depressing as it is, that means we'll always have things to write about. That's right, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, how fun. What would we talk about, man, if we, like, we write horror, mainly. Uh, what would we write about if it was all good? Be fairy tales, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, they are the most dark, remember? Fairy tales. Lots of murder and blood and guts. I mean, like Cinderella, they chopped, what, the stepsisters chopped off their heels and toes to fit in the shoe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Walt Disney was on to something. He's like, I'm going to secretly make horror very popular amongst the kids. Yeah. Because a lot of them start with the parents dead. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I saw Bambi as a kid. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I'd like to talk about Welsh fairy tales and horror stories. I, I'm very interested if there's any that still that we haven't talked about yet that you're or it, it could be, you know, any UK based fairy tale or horror story that you don't hear um, in conversation amongst like Americans or yeah. non UK citizens. Um, the main sort of um, fairy tale world of in Welsh is the Mabinogion. Have you heard of the Mabinogion? No. So it was it was basically um, it's it's tricky to describe. It sort of links with histor- historical facts, and you get things like King Arthur appearing in the Mabinogion and all these sort of characters. Um, but it is really a collection of Welsh folk fairy. I think it's something like the 12th century and they've been adapted and changed throughout time. That's the most famous um, version of Welsh fairy tales. You know, I mean, everybody in Wales will have heard of the Mabinogion, even if they can't name the stories. Like I said, they, you know, they link to history. Um, so I've, I've got a story coming out with, you know, Bridget's Gate with Steve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in his Weir Tales collection. And that one's called um, a Keffel Dur, which means the water horse. And that's based on a character from the Mabinogion. So it's a weird creature that changes into a horse. Um, so that's that's linked to the Mabinogion. Yeah, so. And, and, and someone said on the review of um, Mr. Megalus that it's like a mini Mabinogion. So, again, it's not a conscious thing, you know, it's just I'm Welsh at the end of the day. I've spent all my life living in Wales and that culture just comes through in my stories because we write what we are, really, don't we? You know. Now, speaking of, of you know, co- coming back to your writing after we got off on a long tangent that somehow ended up in Twitter and Patrick recounting <laughs> Black Mirror episodes. Um, now, I, when I think of you, and I, I, when I think of your writing, I think of primarily short stories, just because that's what I came across first. Yeah. Do you have a preference uh, as far as, you know, a length that you like to write? Yeah, my, my heart is with the short stories. Definitely. I mean, I've written, I think, it's three novels and one novella and probably 40, 50 short stories. And I really love short stories. They're definitely my sort of go-to, my natural, you know, thing. And then I would say novellas. But I do like sometimes, like at the moment now, I, I feel like I've written so many shorts, some for, you know, invitations and others just to sub and others just for the collection to make up the collection with original stories. And I really want to get into a new longer piece at the moment, though I, I'm still sitting on The Wolf and Favour, which is a, that's 80 odd thousand words. So that's a full length novel. But yeah, shorts, <laughs> it's my natural go to. Now, I wonder what, what it is about those. I've heard a fair few people say that, you know, it's the most challenging way to write a story because you have to be so concise. Um, it, do you like the challenge or is it just something that makes sense to you? Yeah, it just makes sense to me because I've heard the same thing, you know, and people have said to me, oh, I, I admire you being able to write a short story, but I admire people who can write a series because I could never for the life of me sustain that focus. I think my sort of... <laughs> 
No, I really couldn't. I think my attention span, I think that's part of, part of the reason why I like short stories is because, you know, you scratch the itch and it's over and done with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, definitely for me, short stories are easier. It's just something... You know, that's just the way it is. I find it harder to sustain a full length novel. And again, that might be partly because I'm not a planner. I'll just like I'll wake up sometimes in the morning with a line in my head that has come from nowhere. And then I'll develop that into a short story. But it can't really work as a novel because it's just a line that's weird. You know? Uh, yeah, I totally get that. What do you can you write? a story if you don't have a uh, title oh yeah that... my, my title I find titles quite hard they either come naturally they just you know emerge mm-hmm. or I really struggle to find a title I'm I'm struggling at the moment I've written a short for the Sarah Tatlinger um, call the chromophobia I mean, I don't know whether it'll get anywhere, obviously, but I've written one for her over the last couple of weeks. And I, I love the story. It's, it's quite weird. One of my more weird stories, definitely. But I'm really struggling for a title. So, yeah, the t- title comes last for me. What's that for? I, I'm not familiar with that anthology. She's an anthology called Chromophobia. She basically, though, she's not just looking for fear. Chromophobia is the fear of fears associated with colour. But oh, okay. um, she's not just looking for that. She, she's looking for stuff like um, the Mask of the Red Death and the Yellow Wallpaper. So those sort of, I think she's looking for more sort of that gothic feel, which I love that period. Mm. Gothic fiction is one of my favourites. So she just wants you to do something original with colour. You know, she said she doesn't want to see all black and red, which is one you naturally gravitate towards <laughs> yeah. as a horror writer, isn't it? Yeah. You know? That yeah. would, wouldn't that, uh, maybe it's just my brain, but wouldn't that make you want to kind of explore the color pink or? I think I that's what she wants to see, you know, is some something, she, that's what she said in the call, if you look at the description, something different, you know. But mine's quite sort of multicolored to do with prisms. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> I I love that idea. Um, and I think ready. that anthology is coming out through Strange House, maybe, which is yeah, that, like so. a division of Rooster Republic. Uh, they yeah. did the Not All Monsters anthology uh, right. that came out last year. Right, yeah. Well, it's yeah. worth a shot, you know. So oh, I can and and the way I look at it is, I, I'm honestly, genuinely one of these people that if I get a rejection, I just brush it off because I just think, well, it's another story. Because for me, it's the process of sitting down and writing. And like I said to you earlier, the focus that that gives you regarding mental energy is far surpasses having it accepted or not. I mean, it is nice to be accepted. Don't get me wrong. But it, it really doesn't bother me. I just go, oh, well. I even forget sometimes, <laughs> and, and then I see Tony like an hour later, and I go, "Oh, I forgot to tell you, I had a rejection." Because it doesn't, it just doesn't stick with me. And again, that's to do with my stage of life, I think, and what I want out of writing, and what doesn't bother me. For me, um, it used to bother me eight years ago immensely. Yeah. I was like, ah, but I only received rejections for like six years. <laughs> it's still, it still upsets me, but it's at the point where it's like an hour and then I'm like, eh, I'm fine. Yeah. How about you, how about you Brian? What about you, man? Uh, I, you know, I, I, 
perpetually have to remind myself that even uh, the people whose names pop up in anthologies all the time, uh, you know, their ratio of rejections to acceptances is the rejection number is always, always, always going to be higher. Um, and, you know, I, I, I like to remind myself that I just haven't been at this for that long. So, yeah. you know, uh, it's for the most part, I think the answer to your question is I'm right there with you. I get it. I'm bummed for a little bit and then I'm on to the next thing. Um, and that's, you know, something, Catherine, you said earlier that that kind of stuck with me where you, you were talking about, you know, subbing your novel a couple places and then saying, you know what? let's let's just I'm going to do it because then I can move on to the next thing. Yeah. And that's what it is, is, you know, when you no no judgment, although it's going to sound judgy when you hear about authors that spend like 10 years perfecting a novel, it's like, oh, but don't you want to tell other stories, too? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it's great. I'm sure you got every clause, every punctuation yeah. mark just right. But don't you want to do more? And yeah. and that's kind of where I'm at, you know. Yeah. When I get a rejection, if I can find another place to throw it, I'm going to do that. If not, I'm going to put it in a folder and eventually I'll put out a collection. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's the same, the same as me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm curious because I don't know and maybe I should, but going back to an older topic that kind of ties all this together is um, when I started writing, I was I didn't know where like you. I mean, like, how do you know unless you know? Um, I didn't know where you even look for, I was thinking of agents in the future or getting a book, a novel published and which when you start looking, you eventually stumble upon an anthology. I don't even know what that word was when I first started, yeah. but I, there would be this book, uh, something to do with markets, but the market of, um, every anthology or what agents are looking for of this upcoming year that's how when i started that was kind of the big thing but nowadays it's crazy there's so many websites that are constantly updating it um if it wasn't for stuff like that where would you see yourself as an author now compared to where you are now with the accessibility to however things interconnected in the world um I'm not. I'm not really sure. I know what you're getting at there. Sorry. I, I think. I think I word that all weird. Um. So basically, do you think that? Uh. Yeah. Brian just thought his head. <laughs> <laughs> I could have word that easier. Um. My apologies. I think what you. I, I think what he means is, you know, with where you are right now, where we're starting to see your name pop up in a lot of things. Do you feel like the ex accessibility of being able to find those calls on? Twitter and websites like Horror Tree, do you think that's a big help as opposed to, you know, the 1990s version of having to go out and buy a writer's guide the size of the phone book? Is that what you were asking? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah. knows me very well. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I think I've, you know, mo most of my stories have come about because of either Twitter or Horror Tree. And um, I'm at the stage now, luckily, because I'm getting quite a lot of them, um, like you said, starting to be seen, where probably 50% of my stories now are through invitations, which is nice, you know, as long as I sort of, the, the call, the theme has to warm to me though, or I have to warm to the theme, I should say, because I can't just write it if it's not my subgenre or my sort of, like I can't, I can't do anything that 
involves space because I'm absolutely useless with that type of thing and there's certain things I wouldn't have a clue and and also like splatterpunk is I'm not knocking it as a subgenre it's just not something that I have any intention ever of writing so yeah um horror tree is my go-to um a few other things that I see about on twitter you know um but like I say 50% of the time is is invites now which I I'm fortunate you know and, and sort of getting to know the right people, you know, I've been lucky that I've met some people who, like Brandon um, from Crimson Creek, you know, he's, he's he was fab, he sort of pointed me in the right direction to start with. Jill Girardi from Candisha, she's been wonderful as well. That's yeah, great. so it's just building up contacts through social media. I, I don't think do... I control everywhere, it's just not me, I'm too lazy. <laughs> <laughs> when you do eventually get to it, I really look forward to reading your quiet horror splatterpunk story. <laughs> it's what not going to happen. <laughs> what would that even entail, man? <laughs> so let's jump to what are you reading right now? Catherine, what are you reading right now? Um, Shirley Jackson collection, The Lottery and Other Stories. Really interesting. I think she was quite sort of she again talking about the race issues she was quite so she saw what was coming I think what's the word you know when someone has that sort of insight you know she's quite insightful and she definitely knows people really well and including children and um, so I'm really enjoying that I've, I'm just about to start um, Terry Tyler's new dystopian novel, Mega City. I've read the two that came before it. She's excellent and she's been really supportive of me as well. She's a really good girl. We, we're quite on a par with our sort of likes and interests and black sense of humour. Um, awesome. I've just, yeah, I've just done a beta read for Tim McGregor. So, you know, I'm mm. not going to say anything about that because <laughs> it's still to come. Yeah, that was excellent. I read it last week. I really, really enjoyed it. It's not the one that he got. That one. I was gonna say it's not the one that he got published with Silver Shamrock, is it? So, I, I don't know. Wasps and ice cream or something like that. <laughs> no, I love that title. It's just finished like this. Yeah, I don't think he's done anything with this one yet. I don't think he's sent it anywhere. I, I'm, I'm assuming anyway. Yeah, I, I will look forward to that. I loved Heart Strange and Dreadful. Yeah, and he's he's fabulous. He's such a lovely guy. He's been so yeah. supportive of me. He's a really nice guy. Yeah, that was yeah. a great that was a great story. Brendan, what are you uh reading at the moment, sir? Uh I just started um this book right here, Lambs Among Wolves by Russell James. Uh, it, if I'm honest, it jumped up my list a little bit because um they promoted it as um the Exorcist meets the Da Vinci Code, and <laughs> I, I'm not going to pretend for a second that you know Dan Brown's uh, books are—they're not—they're not good books, but they're—I don't love the word—I don't love the term guilty pleasure because if you enjoy yeah. if you enjoy reading something or watching something, then you enjoy it, yeah. and I enjoy reading those books. They're fast and they're fun. Um, and you know, throw the throw demons into this one, and it does have that kind of like Europe jumping, you know, uh, Catholicism based vibe, but you know, yeah. with these with these exorcisms in the mix there. So I'm about 50, 60 pages in, and it's it's what it promises it would be. So I am enjoying it so far. Patrick, mm -hmm. how about you? Uh, yeah. So 
I'm jumping around with like audiobooks, and I just started for the first time actually ever uh, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I like it. Her language, <laughs> I this is the only way I can word it. Um, I'm a big fan of Love's, Lovecraft's like overall arcing ideas, but his vocabulary is harder to read than someone who wrote like. 150 or so years before him i like it it's pretty neat um pistolary you know so far i don't know if that's how the whole thing is but i like it a lot uh she's got a hell of a voice and i know her past is pretty dark and in- intense but um i like that uh i am reading uh what was the next one um i gotta pull up my goodreads because i'm gonna cheat for a moment <laughs> But. While you cheat, Pat, I wanna I wanna plug one more book, and I talked about it a few weeks ago, but I just I just finished it the other night. I wanna plug uh, Nightmare Yearnings by Eric Raglan. Um, I yep. just you know I, I waded through a story at a time over about a month, and it's it's really good. You know, we talked about people who understand how you know that just short stories work for them, and mm-hmm. Eric is just one of those people. He just knows how to tell us a, a story in that condensed form. Uh, I don't think that comes out till September, uh, but you, you know, anybody listening, you should definitely check that out. It's a I've really definitely good seen book. that about. So, you know, it was quite early to get a notice, doesn't it? If it's not out until September. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm, I might already have it on my Goodreads list actually, because I, I, I <laughs> quite fancied it. Yeah. I'm sure I have. And, to plug his show real quick, Curse Morsels is starring Eric Raglan. Really good stuff there. Um, I'm also reading, uh, this is uh, Epic Fantasy. Um, I, I don't know, LGBTQ, it's LGBTQ focused, so I don't I don't know what the exact subgenre would be, but uh, it is by W. Dale Jordan. This is the second book in, I believe, a trilogy. It's called The Eagle in the Trembling Vessel. I really loved the first one. I thought it was insanely good. Uh, the interesting thing about that was he's the second um, gay author to tell me that they were told from other people that straight dudes wouldn't enjoy their work. It gets, for Jor- um, for W. Dale Jordan's book, it gets pretty detailed with male-on-male um, male, uh, sex scenes. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't know. I can't speak for everyone, but I think it's fantastic writing. And the social commentary in it about um, what he has throughout the story is just great. It's it's an epic fantasy. It, it does new things to that genre that I haven't read before. So I would recommend that. I'm also reading Rosemary's Baby for yes. um, Burying the Dead. Uh, that's pretty cool. It's yeah. It did a lot of things <laughs> to the world after it came out. And inspired, yeah. you know, The Exorcist, amongst many other uh, art. And I'm also, when I can get the chance, um, slowly going through Clyde Barker's Books of Blood, Volume 1 through 3. Um, he, he's he's unbelievable. And you know what? This kind of ties into things that we talked about. Chad Lutsky posted this. Uh, Brennan, I'd like it if you could describe it. Talk about what Chad Lutsky posted with um, Clive Barker's earlier interview. He shared an interview from sometime in the 1990s on this like daytime. It looked like a daytime talk show with cheesy, you know, intro music done on synthesizer. 
And it was just very odd and off-putting. It was, you know, essentially a format where the audience is allowed to ask him questions. And from the word go, they just, they assaulted him. It was, I think the very first question was um, something in the vein of, do you take responsibility for violence linked with, you know, horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, which he didn't write or have anything to do with. Um, and it, it just, it's, it, it's very indicative of that, like satanic panic, uh, you know, the, the media is ruining our children vibe of the nineties. It's very odd, but to his eternal credit, uh, you know, he has a little bit of what the hell's going on. Look in his eyes, but he, he stayed a lot cooler than I think I would have uh, under that pressure. And he, you know, answered everything very gracefully and very intelligently. He's smart. So I'm glad he's coming back to writing too. It's been on like a six year stint, but um, Catherine, I don't think we ever asked. I apologize for this. When is Immortel coming out? Oh, this Thursday. It's coming Thursday, the 15th of July. Okay. <laughs> Look at that beautiful cover. <laughs> I'm getting more and more nervous by the day. Aww. That's, you know, that's really neat because um, to plug Brennan real quick, it, it kind of goes along with what you just said about your own book. You both are acting the same way, and I feel like that'd be me too. Um, you have worked on this. It's your baby. And now the date's coming up where the entire world will see it, and you can't stop it from happening. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I know. I, I almost want to bury my head in the sand at this stage. <laughs> Seriously, I get really nervous about you know, what people think. We did this to ourselves. We put it out there. <laughs> I know. And every day I say, am I mental? Why on earth am I doing this? You know, publicly. Just write it and sort of just keep it on your computer. I really wonder why I, I punish myself like this sometimes. And here's the funny part. You still want to go back for more. I know. I know. Total button for punishment because at the end of the day, we have to be honest, it does hurt when people say bad things. I mean, I, I'm totally all up for everybody, you know, having different preferences and I would never expect everybody to like what I do. But um, I've seen, not not personally, I'm, I've been fortunate, but when you see people really ripped to shreds, I just think it's unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, if you don't like something or it doesn't connect, that's fine. But yeah. I've learned, I've learned as a reviewer, not even because I'm friends or talk to people, but like <laughs> Rod Kelly, uh, he bust my balls. He did it on an episode, and Brennan did, where I rated one of his books a three out of five, and I felt like a jerk. But he, he, he kept railing me, like because he was doing it for fun. He's a southern gentleman, but like he was just like kind of teasing me about it. But I was like, the way I tackled it um, is this is what I liked and this is what I particularly yeah. connect with. But there's still room for others to connect to that. Yeah. You know? I'm sure I saw that. It was one of your episodes, wasn't it? And yeah. I remember, or, or was it, or was it Gabino? I can't remember. I remember someone turning around <laughs> to you and saying, and you gave me a three for that. And <laughs> that's you wrong. That. <laughs> it was wrong. Yeah. It's so. Oh man, like I've given, I've done that with a few people that I like, and I'm just like, oh god, I hope they don't hate me. <laughs> <laughs> but a three is okay, isn't it? You know, it is. I mean, ratings mean different things to different people. 
And and sometimes it's your own fault. Like I've picked up one recently and I started reading a few pages and I thought, why have I chosen this? Because the genre is not for me and it isn't the writer's fault. It's totally my fault. You know, maybe I was misled a little bit by the blurb because it's far too sci-fi for my taste. But that is not the writer's fault. So it's totally my fault. That's fair. I love where this conversation went because it presents a lot of different sides that maybe some people didn't think about. I know that when I started, I didn't think about all the sides of reviewing because I just, I personally thought, hey, well, it's my opinion, blah, blah, blah. But there's someone else on the other end of that book. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. a few. There's actually, there's a few people yeah. on the other end of that book. Yeah. Um, You know what? And sorry for going on my soapbox, but uh, I just see some writers talk about how shitty some shows and TV, like TV shows or movies are. And I, I tell Brennan sometimes, I'm like, they we could be friends with those people. Like all of us know people that write for um, certain television shows or movies. I'm like, do you really want to burn some bridges just because you didn't like something? Yeah. Like it's okay. Yeah. But, but some people take it to the next level. They're like, this sucks. The blah, blah, yeah. blah. I don't yeah. know. I, uh, it, it, the internet would be a lot better if that attitude didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, I would love to know where people can follow you. Also, what does your where's your Twitter Twitter handle come from? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> my Twitter handle totally shows how naive I was two years ago because I think I've just passed my second anniversary with Twitter. I was literally, I, I went to a book fair. I, I actually had a stall on a book fair um, in, in another part, well, a few miles away. And they said to me, and you're not even on Twitter because I was very sort of anti-social media. Yep. And so I <laughs> set up my Twitter account for me and I typed in my name and it was taken. And then I did a little variation and it was taken. And then it sort of suggested that you have a nickname. So I thought, right, well, I'm, you know, constantly looking for the right word to fit in the story. So serial semantic, you know what I mean? But I mean, I can't change it now because, well, I can't really because it's, it's out there too much in the world. So many people know it and it's, it's linked to so many things. But I'm like, what the hell have I done by choosing that? But it's too late. So it just basically reflects my naivety with social media. That's funny. I, you know, I had the same thing. I had, I had a different handle at one point and I'm like, you know, I really got to get rid of this before, you know, my name ends up in a bio or something. So just in the nick of time, otherwise I'd have been stuck. <laughs> I know. It's just a thought of how many people I'd have to inform that it, it has changed yep. because it's everywhere. And so I just can't. So I'm just running with it. <laughs> That's fantastic. So what listener, is- sorry, Brent, go ahead, bud. I said it's good. It's unique. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Listeners, if you are interested in checking out a little bit more uh, content from Brennan and myself and a few guest uh, posters, guest articleists, I don't know, uh, go to deadheadspace.com. Terrible. I know. Brennan's giving me a look like, what are you talking about? Um, We... (laughs) We have content such as uh, for Pride Month, we had two lovely articles from Brie Morgan and uh, Eric LaRocca and um, 
we have a few more articles from from guests. Uh, we would also say go to the store tab if you are interested in merchandise. We have t-shirts, mugs, and a few other lovely things with my goofy mug on it. So let's jump to final thoughts. Catherine, what are your final thoughts? Well, I hope people pick up Immortel and enjoy it. Obviously, that's, you know, paramount in my thoughts at the moment. Um, there's a trailer and all the links are on my Twitter if anybody wants to see a bit more. Um, and I would just like to say thank you to so much for giving up your Sunday mornings. You both work hard and you don't have to do this. And I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's it's a it's a pleasure because we get to learn a whole lot from we would never know about this stuff. I'll speak for Brennan on this, but I mean, just this, just a two was an hour and a half of talking to you. Um, I mean, we we learned a lot of things we could take away for for ourselves, and hope others can too. <laughs> Brennan, what are your final thoughts, bud? Yeah, I'm gonna tell you, I've learned more about whales from uh, you and Tim Lebin than I did in 12 years of public education. So uh, <laughs> I'm I'm happy to give up my Sunday mornings for that. Uh, but you know, we've we've wanted you on for a while, and uh, Immortel gave us a, a nice chance to make it happen. And I echo you. I hope that a lot of people will uh, go out. Uh, it by the time this airs, it's available. Go out, grab it, read it, love it. Thank you. My final thoughts are thank you for giving us an hour and a half of your time. That means a lot. And uh, I've had a blast. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you and love to do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely. And Brennan, thank you for being my co-host per usual. Um, Mornings, I guess, make me sound goofier than at night. (laughs) Um, Next episode is with Bracken McLeod, where we will discuss his latest novel, Closing Costs, followed by... Oh, no, sorry, that'll be this upcoming Monday, followed by an episode with Peter Straub to close out this month. So stay tuned for that. Look out for Off Limits Press's Immortel by Catherine McCarthy. Also has a lot of, as we talked about, a lot of um, upcoming short fiction. So thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Brennan. And thank listener. you. And listeners, thank you. You have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.